Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I'm Liz Lenevy, and today I am joined by Amy Gunn, Erica Slater, and Mary Simon. Today we will be talking about the importance of prepping your expert witness. For any of our listeners who may not be familiar with the type of work that we do, when we put on evidence in a trial, oftentimes it requires some sort of testimony from an individual who has expertise in a certain field. For example, medical malpractice, we're going to need a doctor to talk about what negligence there was in a product defect case. We're going to probably need an engineer to talk about why the product messed up the way that it did. And so... Obviously, expert witnesses are incredibly important. They can really make or break your case. And prepping them for deposition is an incredibly important task because this is probably going to be the first opportunity that opposing counsel has at getting to meet your expert and learning their opinions. So we're going to go around the room and just talk about how we prepare our experts. So Mary, I'm going to start with you. What steps do you take to prepare yourself to prepare your expert? So before I meet or call my expert to prep him or her before a deposition, I need to make sure that I have an incredibly clear understanding of what my goals are in the case, what I need that expert to say, what I need that expert to be able to respond or defend when they're asked certain questions. I'll actually put together an outline of things that I need the expert to know and understand before they are deposed. And one of the ways I do that is by reviewing all of the case materials before I meet with my expert. And normally at any given point in a case before a deposition is coming up, I would have already done that. So it might just be more of a refresher of the key medical records or the key document production in the case and highlighting for the expert what are the main issues that are going to be coming up. Erica, when you are preparing your expert, do you have any hard and fast rules about when that prep should occur, how it should occur, whether it be in person or over the phone, timing-wise, anything like that? It really depends on my familiarity with that expert. If it is someone who I have worked with for the first time, I'm likely going to move that prep earlier, uh, away or further away from the deposition, maybe a week before. And also I'm going to spend more time discussing the issues in the case and and our goals for the deposition. We really strive to look for experts in the field of practice that we're working in and work with experts who are forerunners in that field. And often that coincides with Maybe that person agreed to review our case, but they don't do it a lot. So I spend a little bit more time with those experts, honestly, just to make sure they're comfortable in the same way I would prepping a client for a deposition and make sure that they understand the process because we're the experts at litigation. They are not. They're the experts at whatever industry he or she works in or whatever uh, specialty he or she has. So I keep that in mind and and take that approach to it to make sure I don't miss anything or forget to fill in the blanks for them. Amy, I'm going to pitch the next question to you, but when you prep an expert, what are you trying to accomplish with that prep? 
I need that expert to understand what his or her role is in helping me win the case. It starts with knowing what I have to prove. In most tort cases, we have to prove that the defendant was negligent, which means there was an error or some bad behavior. That bad behavior then has to cause harm. So there's three. Bad behavior causes harm, one, two, three. Different experts fill different roles. Some are just to prove that the action was negligent. Some are just to prove that that negligence caused harm, and some are just what is that harm. So the first thing I do is try to figure out exactly what this expert's role is for me in this case. And then I educate that expert. I think a lot of times we take for granted that experts, especially if they've given testimony before in in legal matters, know those things. And I don't ever take that for granted, unless it's someone that I really have worked with in the past and you don't have to spend time on those things. But they really need to understand what their role is in winning, helping you win the case. For example, I do a lot of medical malpractice, and the negligence piece of those three elements is uh, what we call breach of the standard of care. So the My expert has to say that the defendant, doctor, or hospital breached the standard of care, meaning that they fell below the care that was supposed to be given to this patient, my client. There are definitions for that, and they need to know what the Missouri definition of standard of care is because they most likely will be asked. If they're a causation expert, they have to understand that they have to make that link between the error and the harm. In Missouri, we have a standard that if the negligence causes or contributes to cause the harm, then we've met the causation burden. We've met that element. Because I've had experts say, well, I don't know. Uh, I mean, it wasn't the only thing that caused harm. I said, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. You, we have to, you have to believe that the negligence, that error, contributed to the bad result, contributed to the damage making sure that the experts understand what the burden of proof is, if you will, is really important. And then the damages, a lot of times that's an expert who can just talk about, unfortunately, what the ramifications are for the the negligence for your client, whether it's long-term care or whatever the recovery has been, be it economic or non-economic. So I never take that for granted. I, it's a really good exercise to educate myself again, every single time as to what those elements are and how this person fits into it and really drilling them and and grilling them on what those are. Because if you miss one of those critical links, I mean, that expert can sound great all day long, but it's a technicality that could really harm your case later on. The other thing I like to explain is how certain do experts have to be about their opinions? Because these are opinion experts. These aren't fact witnesses. How certain do you have to be? Because oftentimes, particularly in medicine and science, people want to be 100% certain, and that just doesn't exist a lot of times, particularly in medicine. So our standard is you have to believe something more likely than not, more likely than not, and within a reasonable degree of certainty. But most experts understand that you have to be reasonably certain about your opinion. And sometimes with experts who haven't done a lot of testifying, and they're, they're scientists, they, they want to be right, they strive to be right. 
and they say, I just can't be 100% certain. And I say, look, you don't have to be. And, and I'm not saying that I wouldn't like you to be, but in all reality, who is about anything? And the law doesn't require it. And you could just see that they oftentimes just are relieved by that because they want to be right. They want to be true and honest. And if you say, look, the standard is reasonable degree of certainty, and then they can say, oh, oh, yeah, of course, that's, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that's easy. I just wasn't 100%. I'm like, you don't have to be. And don't hold yourself to that standard. So I start at the beginning. What are the elements of the case? How does this expert fit into it? Educate myself on it. It really helps me organize the case because as many, many, many times as we've all done this, it's still unique to every case. So I want to just sort of get an opinion of the room because I recently took a deposition where the opposing counsel's expert, the defense expert, came in and had just illustration after illustration after illustration trying to make their point. And I don't know if that looks good in front of a jury. I thought it came off pretty clunky, but I'm not sure, you know, what what are everyone's thoughts on encouraging your expert to bring in outside of material, like literature or, in this case, illustrations? Erica? I don't prefer it. The more an expert can rely on their experience and skill and you know, say I've been doing this for 20 years and this is what my research area is and things like that, the better. In certain cases, you do not want to get distracted by arguing about one sentence in an article that maybe the entire point of the article supports the expert's opinion and then maybe there's one sentence that draws it into question. And that is something that as litigators is just a nightmare. That's when you have a mini trial on something like, you know, it could be punctuation in an article and whether that disproves, you know, your expert's point. Now, every expert is different in that regard. I work with a lot of accident reconstruction engineers in my trucking cases, and that is a different thing. That has a lot of science behind it. There's a lot of calculations that are made, physics, <laughs> and studies that support their opinions, like studies that have to do with crash tests, and they will actually use the numbers and averages from those studies to be able to arrive at their opinions. That's the type of expert who I understand is coming with a lot of literature and material. And that's a little different than talking about a medical expert who is put on the spot to do a literature review of a certain topic when you have competing literature and maybe there's no consensus on on the certain topic. So I, as much as possible, discourage that, except knowing that certain specialties are going to lend themselves to having more materials and examples and really need to show their work, whether it's images or animation or something like that. Mary? A couple things that I wanted to add to what you were talking about as far as literature that experts want to bring into the case. Any good lawyer, in my opinion, is going to find the one sentence that's going to chip away your expert's opinion. When defense experts present mounds of literature or illustrations, Liz, to your point, I have a field day with that because I will take every single article and read it, you know, to a point where I'm looking up the authors that wrote that article to find if they've written anything 
on on topic with what the case is about to chip away at that expert's opinion. And the same is going to happen to me. And I got to know that that's what I'm coming up against. Whether the case is about a specific condition or a specific surgery and the expert that we have on the case is incredibly knowledgeable and has published a study or an article directly on point with what the litigation is about and they have it listed on their CV or a publication that they wrote, I obviously need to do my homework and know exactly what's in that literature because without a doubt, again, to my previous point, another attorney is going to pull up their CV and see that they have these publications that are relevant to the lawsuit and they're going to read them and they're going to find them from whatever website they can find them from if they don't already have them from our own expert. So I agree with Erica that you don't encourage your expert to go off Googling and finding articles. You have to be really thorough and careful with your expert when they have a publication or when they suggest literature to use that's on point. You just really need to be careful with it. Another thing in Missouri that's pertinent to experts is that correspondence or communications, written communications with your experts are all discoverable in the case. I have worked with some attorneys out of state who have either retained us as local counsel or what have you. And that's the first thing that I always tell them about because when it comes to literature and correspondence with your experts, the last thing you want to have happen is you're pinging off emails to your expert with various articles saying, does this one help? Do you have one that helps? Because all of that's coming into your case and it's going to go before the jury, good, bad, or otherwise, that information will be shown to them. Amy, do you have any thoughts on bringing outside literature or illustrations? I agree totally. Having a stack of literature is a disaster for all the same reasons. You can find a paragraph or a sentence to support your theory. They'll find one that supports them. If you try to put up a paragraph of a a medical article to a jury and just highlight a few sentences of it, they feel like, what are you hiding from me? And then you say, well, turn to the next page and highlight that. It's it's clunky. It's hard to follow. The jury doesn't know who's the expert. Why are they here if the article is written by someone who says something else? It does, for some reason, though, it doesn't stop people from doing it. And I have experts that show up. And at that point, Mary, as you say, I mean, you got to turn it over. You can't just throw it away or hope that 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 it won't come out because it's our ethical duty to do that and that's why you have a conversation with the expert to begin with and just say look is this something that you really do think literature could help let's talk about that let's make sure that's the case the exception though Mary as you pointed out is the expert who's testifying own literature sometimes that is good stuff because they're saying one thing and you've found on their CV an article that they wrote, and this happened to me last week. They say one thing in the deposition, and I had read the CV and found a couple of the articles written, albeit 30 years ago, and you start the deposition by saying, Doctor, there's a few articles on your CV that you wrote a few years ago. You still stand by the veracity and the accuracy of those articles, don't you? No one's going to say no. And you're like, okay. And then you wait like 30 minutes and you and they say the opposite of what's in the article. And then you can decide whether to confront them in the deposition or just save that for trial. But I chose to go ahead and pull it out. And like, well, doctor, in your article that you just vouched for a few minutes ago, you said this. And then, you know, they're just kind of like, ooh. And then they do all this backtracking that's not very convincing. But so you always have to look at your expert's literature if it has anything to do with the facts of that case. 
But otherwise, I agree. Literature is just, it's a mess. That happened to me recently where the expert, again, it was opposing counsel's expert. I was taking the deposition. They turned over the literature search that this expert had done. And one of them was basically an article saying that the particular incident that happened to our client, well, sometimes it's not caused by what we're saying that it's caused by. It's caused by this completely random, separate phenomenon. And I went, oh, no, what is this? And then I read it, and it was about this case study that completely proved the point Mm -hmm. that we were trying to make that, no, 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 this is why this happened to this particular person, and now this article proves it. And when I confronted the expert about it, his response was, oh, well, I just found it interesting. And I thought, what was the point of it? (laughs) This is just helpful for me. You did your job. They were hoping you weren't going to do your job. And I see this a lot. I mean, literally in this case I was just describing, these experts, I said, what did you do to come up with these articles that you presented today? I Googled it. Well, hell, anybody, I mean, anybody could Google it. The jury could do it. I could do it. But what... What about this article or what search terms did you use? And sometimes even the search terms are illustrative of what the bent they're trying to prove or what theory they're trying to prove and not really being intellectually honest about what they're even looking for. So, yeah, it's but it's a fun day when you can turn things on their head like that. It really is. So for experts who might be uh, a bit greener, at testifying, what are the warnings that you give them before going in to sit for their deposition? What do you tell them? Hey, be careful of this. Watch out for that. Amy? If it's a new expert and they're not used to it, even though they could be the one of the most experienced experts in their field of science, they're a fish out of water in a deposition and they're nervous. And I say, doctor, you know this subject more than anybody in that room more than anybody. Don't be afraid and don't feel nervous about giving your opinions on your subject area. And I, when I depose experts, I tell myself, girl, you can, you can teach yourself pathology in an afternoon if you try, and I try that all the time, but I'm never going to know it better than that expert who's been practicing it for years and been in school for years. I'm probably going to know the facts of the case better. I feel like I can always and should always beat an opposing expert on facts. But for my expert, I try to give them confidence about their opinions. And I tell them, you know this better than anybody. And I'm not afraid to say this. Doctor, you've already told me X. That's why we're here today. That's why you're testifying. That's what I told the defense attorney you're going to say. You better damn well say it today. The cross-examination might be rough. You're dealing with a smart, good lawyer. They have some techniques that you may not be used to, but you have to believe and honestly believe in this fundamental fact. And if you don't believe in this fundamental fact and can't support that today, then we need to know it right this second. And, And I think you have to have that conversation. I 100% agree with Amy. I recently have been telling my experts, the only person who can discredit you is you. Yes. Do not let that happen. I rarely have an expert who is super new to testifying. Late last year, I had an expert getting deposed and it was her first time in a deposition. And 
my God, she knew the case better than any expert I think I've ever worked with. But I told her beforehand, you are going to get asked the same type of question in a hundred different ways to make you come off of this opinion that you just told me. Mm-hmm. And I don't care what way that they want to ask it. Is your opinion still your opinion? And she said, yes. And I said, great. I just, I, I can't tell you how many times you know, you, you're sitting in your chair at your it's, own expert's deposition. It's an awful, <laughs> and it's I, like, that's one of my least favorite places to be. Right. And all the what ifs and what about this and consider this, have you thought about this? Have you reviewed this? And you still have the, that opinion. And it's, and I've told my experts before, you'll hear the tone change to a point where the other attorney will want you to think you're just crazy for having this opinion or that dishonest. you do or dishonest, but it is your opinion, and unless you come off of that opinion, no one else can make you come off of that opinion. So instilling confidence in your expert at a prep and just letting them know that it's their deposition, it's their time, they're the expert, you know, just pumping them up a bit, I think that that has made a huge difference in my experts' depositions, especially the ones that are a little bit newer to doing medical legal work or testifying. I have a story with a particular expert. I had not hired him. We had not hired him. Our firm had inherited the case from another attorney who had retained this particular expert. I think in the time that the litigation was progressing, this expert may have had a decline himself. And in that time, he had not really prepared for the case. He had not really prepared for his opinions, but he was firm in his opinion that the defendant was wrong. And no matter how hard I tried to prep him, he was uh, just not willing to really study up on the case or clarify his opinions. And it got to the point when we were actually in the deposition that he was evading answers. And it was very clear that he was not going to give a straight answer. And it got pretty heated between him and opposing counsel. And what I had to do was take a break. I forced a break and took him out into the hallway and sort of scolded him a little bit and told him, you need to get in there and you need to be honest and you need to give straight answers or we're going to be here for the next eight hours just in a loop because you're not you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing and you're not testifying and answering the questions and listening to the questions. And it sort of worked. He straightened up a little bit, but I just found him so, he was so confident in himself to the point that he was arrogant and he wasn't doing his job at the same time. So, Erica, you're nodding your head like you got something to say. I find that, yes, I do build my expert up and make sure they understand that they can have confidence and they are the expert in the room whose opinion matters. At the same time, for almost all of my experts, I also spend a good amount of our prep cross-examining them. And what Mary was saying before, and I think Amy mentioned as well, that's why it's so important to do your own work. You should really be preparing prior to preparing your expert. You should be preparing to cross-examine them the same way the defense attorneys are cross-examining them. And that includes researching their CV, looking at their own articles that they have been a part of writing, talking with them to make sure you understand 
any articles that they've written that are relevant to your topics, and doing exactly what we mentioned before that any expert can be a victim of as far as being cross-examined with their own literature. So I spend a lot of time preparing to prepare an expert as if I was deposing them. And that has been the best way that I learn my case and I learn how to prepare my expert and really the best way to prepare them for the questions that they're going to encounter, undoubtedly. Mary, what do you do in that situation? So I think we're all thinking right now in our heads of certain experts (laughs) that we've had this experience with. I can just see it on everybody's face. One expert I can think of in particular He was super nice, super confident, but not that prepared. I think that's probably one of the worst combinations is overconfidence in your expert with no preparation. And I'm not talking about preparation with me and the expert. I'm talking about the expert being hired to prepare themselves for the deposition and them not doing that. I learned a lot working with this expert and I've I'm carrying over some of the lessons I learned from working with him to apply to future experts. And I, I happened by chance to call him and ask him if he had received a set of records or something that we had scanned over. I just wanted to make sure he was able to download them or something. And in a short conversation that I had with him, I just got the feeling that he really hadn't looked at the records to the extent that he should have given the time frame between that phone call and the deposition, and it was out of state. So I asked him to schedule another phone call with me before I was going to prep him in person. And I asked him to make sure he looked at certain sets of records. I almost felt like I was giving the guy homework. So I told him that by the next time that I talked to him, I expect that he would have an understanding of certain sets of records. And he went, okay, got it. No problem. Then I had another short conversation with him that wasn't really prep. I just wanted to make sure he was, you know, following up and doing his job. And I could tell that he had looked at the material a little bit more. And then finally on our day of prep, I showed up and, you know, he had it down. And I walked in and he went, well, you sure did your homework. You got to know what you're talking about. And I know you know your opinions and that's great. Don't stray away from them. That's awesome. But when you get asked about, you know, the facts of the case, even though you know the medicine, you got to know the facts of the case and how to apply the medicine to the facts of this case. And having that conversation with him prior to our prep, our in-person prep, helped a lot as far as getting his opinions out in a way that applied to the case. Because sometimes there's a disconnect with experts when they think, and I think this happens on both sides for plaintiffs and defendants, an expert just decides what their opinion is going to be based on an understanding of medicine or whatever the issue is in the case. But they, they aren't prepared to actually put meat on the bones, so to speak, of those opinions. So I think any time an expert is overly confident, I think that's great. But you also need to make sure they understand you know, what your case is about and be able to back up those opinions when they're interrogated about them at a deposition. Amy, do you have any horror stories of experts who are underprepared. So many. many. And I am not afraid, like you, Liz, I'm not afraid to call a break and rip that person a new, because it is, it could be the end of the case. And I will pull them out and I'll say, look, you've been hired to do this. You've told me you're going to do this. My client's case to a certain extent, relies on you 
saying today what you told me a year ago. And I hear you not saying those words, and I need to know why. And I need you to understand how important it is and that this is not just sitting in a conference room on a random Wednesday in Dayton, Ohio. This is about this person's case and, to a certain extent, their life. And I don't have to do that very often. I can tell that you've done it before. Though. I have, however, <laughs> done that before. And I mean it. And they see it in my eyes. They hear it in my tone. And they're like, oh, dang, this isn't just an exercise in, you know, spouting off my expertise in something. And like I said, it hasn't happened very often, but I, I do not hesitate to do that. And also, if I have an expert who's fighting with opposing counsel, I will jerk a knot in their tail. I mean, how many times do we talk about don't take the bait? And I remind them of that. And it's a little bit of shaming them into it, because I think some of them do feel like you have to be strong in your opinion. And the answer is no, you just have to give your opinion. You just have to give a strong opinion. You don't have to give it in a strong, hostile way. And once you give them permission not to be a tough guy, then it's fine. But I've done both of those things. I think that's interesting because that happened to me recently. And it's happened to me more than once. And typically it is with attorneys of a certain age and with experts of a certain age and gender often falls into that as well. And it sometimes is very awkward for me being a younger female lawyer and talking to men who are my father's age, sometimes my grandfather's age, and lecturing them. And there have been times where I've stepped in and told the expert, hey, you really need to rein it in. But there have been times where I felt uncomfortable stepping in and I, I let it go on maybe a bit longer than I should have. And I'm trying to learn to not do that, but it, it has happened. So Erica, do you, do you have any insight onto, onto what to do when, when they're just bickering? Well, I was going to mention that I felt like you're describing before. And I think it's important in those moments to not interact with that expert as, oh, you know, you are older than me. You know a lot about this. You know, you should be the one telling me about this. Don't worry about that. Channel the fact that you are representing your client in that deposition. And that is the way I get through that. The same way we've talked about how you present yourself in trial or how you present yourself at a hearing, and it's easier to advocate for your client. If you take yourself out of that equation, it equalizes things. You are the only person there working with that expert who is on your client's side 100%. And I think that that's a way to get past those feelings and do your own job to help that expert remember what their job is. <laughs> Mary, you're about my age. Do you ever have that problem? With each expert deposition, I learn more and more about reading the room in a deposition and knowing when to put my foot down and when to let the conversation keep going. But I have been in situations before that Amy has talked about where, you know, we're just not here to sit in a room while these two guys, in my experience, it's always been two guys, two guys go back and forth about something that is completely irrelevant to the case. And it's just, you know, who can puff their chest more. And I honestly, after this podcast um, episode and this discussion, I will take the tools that I've learned, especially Amy, from what you're saying, just call a break and 
talk to your expert. And I also wrote down, Erica, you are your client's advocate and you're their only advocate in that situation. And I think that's really what drives all of us to do our jobs anyway. Something I've noticed that certain attorneys seem to do every time and certain attorneys seem to never do. Do you ask your own experts questions in their depositions? Do you do a cross-examination of your own expert? Amy. It depends, but typically, yes. I know the elements in my case. I know what I have to prove to get past a motion for summary judgment to get my case to trial. There are very specific elements that I have to prove, oftentimes with expert testimony. If I feel like the direct examination or the the cross-examination, the first part of the deposition, wasn't very clear about those opinions and reaching those levels of proof, then I will ask the, quote, ultimate questions, such as, Dr., I believe you've said this, but is it your opinion that Dr. Jones fell below the standard of care when he performed the surgery on Ms. Smith? Yes. Okay. And is that your opinion to a reasonable degree of medical certainty? Yes. Then I will say, Dr. Jones, is it also your opinion that the error committed by defendant doctor caused or contributed to cause her harm? Yes. And is that opinion held to a reasonable degree of medical certainty? Yes. Do you believe that the negligence caused harm and damages to Ms. Smith? Yes. Is that held to a reasonable degree of medical certainty? That way, there's not going to be a motion filed. Now, if there are other things that I didn't feel like were very clear, then I clarify that. If there are opinions that somehow, for some reason, my expert forgot to say and the defense attorney didn't really elicit, then I'll jump into that. Because I don't want to be, I don't want the door to be closed at trial from my expert having that opinion. So it, again, it starts with what is your goal with this expert? What do you have to prove with this expert? Once you go through your questions, that allows the defense attorney to follow up again on all those questions that you just asked. And if you got everything you needed in the first part of the deposition. Don't really open that door because if you're worried that you could lose it, then it's just it's a game day decision on on whether to a- ask questions that will basically allow the defense to chip away at them. I have a question for you all about expert prep. What documents do you provide to your expert? prior to his or her deposition and specifically prior to prep? Erica? The the whole file. And I don't say that facetiously. There are situations that are few and far between that I kind of separate or parse out what I give certain experts. And those rare cases are when a certain expert is – looking at damages in like a trucking case. So my accident reconstruction expert needs very few of the medical records in that case, maybe just the initial ones or to learn a few things about the injuries. But that the medical and the injuries are not relevant in general to an accident reconstruction engineer's opinion. So that's an example. However, I would tell that expert, you have access to the entire file. I can give you the entire file, and you are free to look at anything in here. And sometimes we will go through categories of 
documents. Do you need this? Please tell me why you don't need that. So I can understand whether that's something my expert should have in their file. And the reason that is, is because I don't want a opposing counsel coming back and it looking like I'm withholding information from the expert to try to narrow his or her opinions or not let them review all the information in order to arrive at their opinions. And in that same vein, a very important question for preparing your expert is to ask them, have you reviewed everything that you believe you need to review in order to give your opinions? And I do have a little cheat sheet template. I use two of them, one for prepping my client and one for prepping my expert. Because when you get in a conversation with an expert, it's very easy to kind of lose track of all those kind of checkmark or checkbox things you need to get through. So that is one of the things that is on that checklist of saying, have you reviewed everything that you need to, knowing you know what's all in the file to arrive at your opinions? There is not, no other additional work you need to do after today to arrive at your opinions or to solidify your opinions or anything like that. When we present an expert for deposition, we want that expert to have done all the work that they intend to do and that they need to do to give those opinions. The documents that I provide to the expert at the beginning of the case are not all the documents that will exist at the time of the deposition. There will likely be additional materials that we provide in the form of depositions. So we send all the initial records and then you send a set of depositions and then you send some discovery answers. Before the deposition of that expert, I have to know what is the entirety of that expert's file. Now with so many Zoom depositions and video depositions, what I've done is have my paralegal get ahead of it and say, you know, doctor, whoever, I need your entire file. Not just everything I've sent you, but everything that you've created, your invoices, your CV, your notes, if you've marked on the depositions, if you've made notes in the margins. These are things that could be interesting to the opposing counsel. So you have to have a good set of that. And it's so much more efficient to provide all those things, you know, a, a, a day or so in advance to the opposing counsel. But what you don't want is to show up to deposition and the expert not have brought his entire file or her entire file. All right, ladies, I feel like I've learned a lot, but I'm interested in what everyone's takeaway from this is. So Mary, I'll start with you. My takeaway in prepping your own expert for their deposition is make sure your expert has everything he or she needs in order to form their opinions in the case and let them know they're the only person who can discredit themselves from giving those opinions. Amy, is there anything that you've learned from, from this discussion. I loved Mary's phrase, only you can discredit you, which goes into the confidence that the expert needs to give the opinions. So I am going to say those exact words to the next expert I have who appears to have some, some self-doubt. I'm going to say that. I loved it. And Erica? I had a good reminder from listening to Amy answer the question about whether you question your own expert to, in every deposition I defend an expert, to keep my list of what opinions I know that expert intended to share and then check them off as we go. I think I've done that a couple times and always happy when I spend the time to do that, but it's a good reminder to 
make that a rule. Liz, what about you? So the takeaway that I've gotten from this is to have more confidence in myself and in prepping my expert. So thank you all for joining us. You can catch new episodes of Heels in the Courtroom every Wednesday. You can also join in on the discussion at heelsinthecourtroom.law. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know what questions you may have or what experiences um, or your own horror stories with experts. Please send them to us. We're happy to receive anything. And as always, until next time. Bye. Cheers. Cheers. Heels in the Courtroom is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Connect with Amy, Liz, Mary, Erica, or Elizabeth at heelsinthecourtroom.law.